0: This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds
1: Art Week.
2: Around the world, Intel is a brand that most people are aware of. But that wasn't always the case. Kevin Sellers is one of the reasons why Intel was able to build up its brand recognition in new regions all around the globe and now he's working hard to make waves at a different company. Kevin is currently the CMO of Ping Identity, where he is helping that company emerge as a leader in the growing market of intelligent identity. On this episode of Marketing Trends, Kevin talks about his past and the work he's doing now with personalized customer journeys and innovative marketing techniques. Enjoy this episode. Marketing Trends Podcast is brought to you by Salesforce. We bring marketing and engagement together. Learn more at Salesforce.com slash marketing.
1: Here is your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, host of Marketing Trends, and I am joined by special guest. Kevin, what's going on?
3: Good, how are you? Glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, great to have you on the show. We are going to be talking about your career as multi-time CMO. Uh, we're going to be talking about what you're doing currently, at CMO ping identity, and much more. So let's get into it. How did you get started in marketing in the first place?
3: That's a really good question. It's probably longer than you want, so I'll keep it uh, keep it somewhat brief. But I actually graduated with an MBA uh, and and started my career in finance. So I, I was hired by Intel Corporation and began as a financial uh, analyst and spent about four or five years in finance enjoyed it, learned a lot, but kind of always was looking over at the marketing team going, you know what, that's really what I'd rather be doing. Why am I sitting in my cube crunching numbers when I can be out there doing what I really want to do? So I spent the first, like I said, first four or five years, um, very educational and helpful, but I, I started to look for ways to work to get myself into marketing. And so I ended up taking an assignment in Tokyo, Japan. Uh, It was a kind of a business management. It was a quasi marketing slash finance role, more of an analytical pricing centered marketing role that sort of leveraged my training, but kind of got me into the door of marketing. And that's kind of what my first big break was. And then as I spent, I ended up spending about eight years living in Japan. And while I was there, uh, after having done that job for a couple of years, the, uh, the president of Intel Japan there saw that I had quite a bit of acumen around you know, marketing and go-to-market and creativity and so forth. So he uh, he took a chance on me and offered me the role of uh, running the product marketing organization there for Intel Japan, which was about a $3 billion business at the time. And And then did that for a couple of years. And then we ended up merging that with our promotional marketing team. We actually had two marketing teams at the time. We brought them together. So I owned all aspects of the go-to-market at that point. Um, everything from the high funnel activities of advertising, all the way down to, uh, uh, sales enablement. And so that was a really, uh, the, the opportunity to demonstrate the acumen, the experience, the creativity, the drive around, how do we drive a brand? How do you build a brand and in a foreign market where brands are really important, but foreign brands are not really well respected outside of Disney. So that was a really great opportunity to, to demonstrate that. And then from there, it led to some very important roles. I ran brand strategy for Intel for a few years, uh, and then eventually came back and ran uh, their their global advertising, their creative services and digital marketing functions, and um, did that for several years. And then from there, I ultimately left Intel and um, went to work for Avnet, about a $20 billion business, and uh, was their chief marketing officer. I was actually the first chief marketing officer they ever had and uh, did that for about four years. And then I uh, just recently left to take on a really interesting role at a smaller company that just went public. But it's a software company that deals with um, identity and access management, which we're living in an era of coronavirus right now, which is um, demonstrating the need for companies to be able to enable their employees and their customers to transact with them really anywhere, anyhow, on any device. And this company, Ping Identity, actually provides the software that allows you to Uh, the software and SaaS tools that allow you to uh, authenticate your employees and allow them to engage productively from anywhere, uh, as well as allowing your customers to transact from anywhere at any time on any device. So that's kind of the short version of how the career trajectory happened from starting in finance and then making my way into marketing through large companies and now into a small one. But that's where I'm at now and having a great time doing it.
1: Did you write the intel inside... Jingle when you
3: were in Intel. <laughs> I wished I could say I did, uh, but no, that was uh, that was written uh, before I even started. But uh, it was a fascinating thing. I remember when I was there, we got some research back that said the awareness of that jingle was something like ninety six percent. I mean, it was just it was just insane. I believe it, was it. crazy. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it was very obviously a very successful thing, and it was interesting too if you think about it because Intel was the first company to really go out there and demonstrate that you can brand and market at an ingredient level. Because you can't go buy an Intel product, right? You buy somebody else's product with Intel inside. So everybody thought Intel was crazy. Why are you trying to market? And not only why are you trying to market, why are you marketing to the consumer who can't buy your product? Dumb, silly thing. Well, you know That's just a waste of money. It turned out to be one of the most brilliant marketing maneuvers probably ever and there's harvard case studies written about it right it's a, been a brilliant thing
1: well yeah let's 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 talk about it because this is one of the things i wanted to talk to you about was that exact thing right like it's kind of the classic uh you know modern marketing um kind of like 101 is if you're not if you're not marketing to your end end buyer uh or or even just like kind of business one on one now you see with all the direct to consumer brands and things like that. It's like if you're not if you don't control the customer uh journey really, really well, then you know it's gonna be harder. Um, but Intel like classically didn't market that way. Uh and uh, you know, shows no signs of stop of slowing down or stopping anytime soon. Um, but I'm curious, like what what was like the the rationale behind those decisions?
3: it's all rooted in some, I think, very important insight, right? If you're not building a brand, you're building a commodity. And, the, and Andy Grove, who was the CEO at Intel when I was there for a long time, famously said, the last one commoditized wins. You, you don't want your product or service to be viewed as a commodity. And what branding allows is, a, you know, you, you're creating an emotional connection to your buyer. And that emotion can be on a range of things, but whether it's B2B or B2C, the decision-makers in life are emotional beings. So if you have the ability to connect with them at that emotional level, you create loyalty, you, you, you allow for price premiums. You know, there have been multiple times in the history of Intel where their product, I mean, for the most part, over the, over the course of history, if you just think about the personal computer market, which obviously isn't as big a deal today as it was back in the 80s and 90s, but if you think about the history of that, most of the time, Intel had the the, the superior product, but not all the time. And there were moments in time when their product was not the best on the market from a performance perspective. And yet, the brand strength carried it through those moments and still allowed for the company to charge premium. And so this notion of Intel inside, the notion of a jingle, the notion of really having a strong identity and a very specific place in the decision-making. You know, the point is, if you're going to go buy something, just, is Intel inside? Because if it's inside, it's a little better. It's higher quality. And that's, that's really the success of that campaign over the years was to get consumers to go into a retail shop or online and say, you know, but I don't want that other one. I want the one with Intel inside. And their willingness to pay a premium for that really is a testament to the, the importance of branding and why doing it well actually pays off, um, uh, you know, in spades.
1: I also, I remember so many times looking at different computers and, and doing that as a consumer, right. Who didn't really understand any of that stuff back in the day. Um, but you would see the Intel stickers all over, right. It's like Intel inside. Um, And as a consumer, you just instantly know. I mean, it makes sense that you're saying that it's 96% uh, because, I mean, there's just so many ads. Now, kind of conversely, I don't remember a single one of those ads, (laughs) right? right? Like, I I don't remember a single thread of the campaign, but I do remember Intel Inside and I remember the 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 little jingle um it's not a jingle what's it called the
3: the intel bong i don't know if that's the the, that's what what people at intel call
1: i'm curious how many types of campaigns were you overseeing at that time that were you know different types of you know a lot of tv advertising um but if you were to do the same thing today it would be much more difficult uh, to do those same type of ads with, you know, lots of people moving off of TV. Obviously, TV is still extremely important, but you don't get that sound. You go, you don't get the bong. You don't get, you know, that same sort of thing. I'm curious, like, what do you think that that would be like today? Marketing the same sort of, uh, if you wanted to do the same sort of idea for a company, it's like, hey, we want this thing to be everywhere. We want a large scale brand campaign where people can understand a component Um, but not the broader thing, but you don't have necessarily the same tools at play, uh, in, you know, mass television to get everybody on the same page, especially if you wanted to like, you know, do a younger demographic.
3: Yeah. Uh, Well, let me give you just a little bit of, um, perspective on your comment earlier about you, you know, you remembered certain things. You didn't remember the specific ads, but And then I'll come back to the specific question you asked, but I think it's important in terms of what Intel did, because this is illustrative, I think, for a lot of us as we we continue to to try to drive the business forward for our our companies. Intel did two things that I think were really great. They decided on a very clear message. We're going to own inside. We're going to own that real estate. Not only are we going to own that real estate in the device itself, but we're going to own that real estate in your mind. We want you to think about us as that engine inside that is so important. And so that was very, very clear. And then their, their campaigns, their direct campaigns were really focused at that idea. And then what they did, the second piece was, was, was probably not appreciated nearly enough, but it was a brilliant stroke, which is they decided to say, look, here's what we're going to do. Our customers, we want you to advertise your products. And we want you to include in your advertising a badge and the bong saying that this product has Intel inside. Now, they're not going to do that, you know, just willingly because, you know, they want to push back and say, wait, 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 we're advertising our products. We don't want to advertise your products. But Intel came up with a, really, with a really interesting program. It was called the Intel Inside Program. Essentially, what we did is we said, okay, every time we sell a processor to you, let's just say it's $100, we sell it to you for $100, we're going to take a certain percentage, a few percentage points of, of that revenue, and we're going to set it aside in an Intel Inside campaign fund that you, the customer, have access to, that you can use to pay for the advertising. So if you advertise your products and you include the Intel badge and the Intel bong, you then get the opportunity to get a, a, a good portion of that ad paid for out of this fund that's accrued. If you don't want to use the money and you just want to advertise your product, no problem, but you just don't get access to those dollars. So there was, an, there was a carrot in there, especially for companies that didn't have you know really big profit margins to want to leverage that so that they could advertise their products more. So that became the scale engine. So Intel did its own campaigns, but the the amount of media spent via that program was it dwarfed the amount of money Intel spent direct. But that's what really drove acceptance and the awareness of both Intel and that bomb. And so part so part of the lesson I think part of the lesson I think is it's not just you that has to tell your story. How can you get your partners, your customers your your you know to help tell the story for you and i think that was the the really brilliant move that intel made was they they incentivized that and it just worked it worked great
1: that's a really incredible story i had no idea that's yeah. fascinating how did that go over with the you customers you know it
3: went it was interesting because some customers were like great that's money that i can use awesome and so they signed up willingly others there was a time and i'm going to get the year wrong i want to say it was probably 1995 Four, three, four, five, six, somewhere right in there, mid nineties, when Compaq Computer, the CEO, his name was Eckard Pfeiffer at the time, he basically said, you know what, we're, we don't want to do this Intel inside program anymore. We're tired of promoting Intel. We want to promote Compaq. So Intel, nope, we're not doing your program anymore. And so, you know, Intel's response was, okay, fine. That's fine. You know, this this is not, there's, there's no gun to the head. This is just a, a bucket of dollars we're making available to you if you will include, you know, the badge and the bunk. They went on their own. And I don't remember exactly how long it was, but it was a year, maybe two, but it wasn't much, it wasn't longer than that where they finally came back and said, yeah, well, I think we're going to come back into the program. And uh, they took advantage of that because the money was real and um, it ended up making a significant impact for their own P&L. So throughout the, the time that it happened, I mean, it's still going on now. You'll occasionally see ads on TV for Dell or others. That it'll, it'll have that bong or something. And I get not there now. So I don't know the details of what the program is today, but Something very similar to what it was, but customers didn't like it, but they couldn't refuse it because the money was, was too important to them to, uh, for their own financial performance. But you know, at the end of the day, um, Intel and Microsoft ended up building very powerful brands from the PC industry, and a lot of it had to do with the strength of their marketing and the simplicity of their message and then the leveraging of the, of the partner ecosystem to help scale their message out.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. What a what a great case study. Um, you know, I mean, we see now certain types of uh, of partner marketing. You know, that's pretty obvious. Like obviously, you know, the the carriers like Verizon and and Apple and and different things like that that you see. But again, it's like kind of two sides of the same coin, right? so it's it's not quite as uh, as innovative it's it's a little bit more. but although I wonder how those are structured, so maybe it is more innovative than than it appears. We talk about partner marketing from time to time on the show as um, kind of like one of one of two ways usually. It's either really well done or just totally falls flat on its face um because you really need to find the right partners and have the right approach and be invested in it together. Um have you had any other campaigns where you tried to do something similar to that and it, it didn't work?
3: I'm trying to think of example. Well, can I give you an example of one that did work? that was a little unique. Will that work?
1: <laughs> so, yeah.
3: or yeah. Um because you're right. I I think I'm in B2B now, right? And B2B it's interesting because the buyer um the the journey is so different. I mean, but you know, by the time they talk to a salesperson, they're two thirds of the way through the journey already. Right. So they're, and one of the most important parts of that journey is, is um, testimonials, you know, hearing from other customers, hearing from third parties, analyst firms, like a Gartner or Forrester, you know, some of these that are very highly qualified, independent, those, those become so important to that buyer journey. And so I'm, you know, I'm grappling with that right now, but, in terms of a success, I'll, I'll just go back in time and I don't want to keep harping on Intel, but I, there was a time when I lived in Japan. One of the struggles we had in Japan was the brand that we had uh, Intel had in Japan was uh, if, you, if you looked at it at the time, it was a top 15 brand worldwide, in terms of uh, uh, brand value and recognition. But in Japan, it was number four hundred and ninety-seven at the time that I was there. Wow! So we it, the Intel brand just didn't it just didn't resonate and it wasn't working. And the Japanese are are um, you know they were very very favorable to local brands and they didn't really love uh, foreign brands except for one, and that one was Disney. The number one brand in Japan actually wasn't a Japanese brand; it was Disney. They are crazy about Disney, so. We were looking at, okay, how do we build our brand? What we need to do? How do we appeal? Because also at the time in Japan, the, the the person who made the decision to buy a personal computer, if it was for, for home use, not not for uh, IT use, but if it was for home use, it was the mother, the wife. They controlled the purse strings. And so, our brand awareness among the female population was even lower. It was 500 and something, I can't remember the number, but it was it was even worse than the total. So we, we set out to say, look, let's, let's go. I'm going to go. So I paid a sales call to my counterpart over at Walt Disney Japan. And I just said, look, here's what's interesting. I'm looking at all this data. You guys have this amazing, strong brand. We have a really weak brand. And yet we have a very strong global brand. And they were trying at the time to launch in Japan uh, their internet portal. And they had a group called the Walt Disney Internet Group. And they said, it was interesting because he said, we had a really nice conversation. He said, you know, our problem is our brand's really strong, but from a technology perspective, as as we're trying to get more virtual and become more technology savvy, our technology awareness is perceived as nothing. And yet you guys, Intel, you have a very strong technology perception. So it turns out that they had a need to talk to us. We had a need to talk to them. So we crafted a program together that was really innovative. um, And we did a number of things with them specifically to uh uh we helped them with their internet portal we did some unique instructions to some processors to help with uh some of the things they were trying to get done and we we sort of co-marketed each other um us through our technology uh and them through their sort of consumer favorability uh, anyway a lot of details i leave out of there but the net result was that on top of some other things we had done as well, I'm leaving out of being a little bit uh, dismissive of some of the other activities, but that was one of the principal things that we did. We, we did a program with them for a couple years, but our brand awareness shot up through the roof and we ended up, we ended up having, um, in about three years time, Intel was the country with the absolute lowest performance to value mix of product, which meant we had the lowest average selling price of any of the other regions or countries in the world for Intel three years later, we had the highest in the world um, because the brand wow. premium kicked in and the experience that we offered unique to Disney users and how that would affect the performance of the experience they were having online on the Disney portal became so important to them that they were willing to go out and buy the premium product from us to, or, you know, a computer with a premium product in it to be able to experience all the things you could that were offered by Disney with that premium product. So it was just a a great example of, you know, finding someone out there that, that can partner with you and help you with your shortcomings and weaknesses that you also can offer uh, uh, to theirs. And those kind of symbiotic relationships are not easy to find. I, I, I will admit that I got pretty lucky because the timing was just perfect, but it was one of the really great uh, projects in my career.
1: That is really fascinating. How do how are you measuring like those brand? You, you're talking about those rankings so specifically. How are you measuring? Yeah,
3: that? we had uh, they had we, there was a service there that that did awareness and um, preference, and we had all kinds of metrics that we could get, and we would measure those every you know couple times a year. And um, you know, we measured our ad performance, of course, and um, and all of the different tactics. It's obviously better now with so much more pervasive digital uh, marketing that's taking place. But even then, we could. We could measure uh, with we, we that a third-party research firm there in Japan, and uh, and yeah, we were you know it was it was it was really fun to watch because the relationship between the weak brand and the poor mix of product we were selling at the time was distinct. It was clear a weak brand does not give people a reason to want to engage with you, nor are they really interested in buying anything that's premium from you. You're a commodity right? It's like I said earlier, you're either building a brand or you're building a commodity. At the time, we were viewed as a commodity and uh, in Japan. And so, um, what really kept us going was that Intel and Side program. So, we had pretty good market share, mostly because of the Intel and Side program, but we didn't have preference from the consumer. And that's what we went about to fix. And that helped. It didn't change our market share, but it definitely changed our mix. So, we, we had a much higher ASP, therefore, more margin, better profitability.
1: So flash forward to today as CMO of Ping Identity, this is an industry that is really exploding kind of overnight. I mean, it's something that, um, I mean, I think like with single sign-on and everything, uh, you know, zero trust as a framework, all these things are kind of like happening really fast and in real time. I think every, you know, uh, company out there is so worried about, you know, how they're You know, data is being protected. How their employees are being protected. How all those things. So it's uh, it's a hot space. Um, Why were you so excited to join Ping Identity?
3: You know, you you touched on a lot of it. I I was, um, you know, it was an opportunity. I'd been in hardware my whole career. I'd been, you know, really focused on the semiconductor um, side of things, which is a fascinating business in its own right. But uh, it was a hardware world at one point, but. You know, we're we're in a world where most of the consumer and most of the end uh, experience that you have is now being delivered via um, innovation in software and through cloud technology and the ability to deliver these capabilities at very low cost. It, it's really changed the landscape of business. And, you know, we're in the middle of, as I mentioned, you know, we are all sitting here in the middle of a, a pretty significant pandemic. And... As bad as it is, one of the things that's going to be a positive for us is our ability to continue to work virtually uh, because of technologies that, uh, such as you know, single sign-on authentication, uh, things like the zero trust uh, frameworks that you described. That, and so when I when I was looking at the company, I thought, wow, this the space itself is an opportunity to to really grow, and managing growth is obviously more interesting than than uh, than not. And but it was also a chance to say, you know, this is a different model for than what I'm used to. It's not the big budget, you know, TV sort of thing. This is how do you go build a brand, build awareness, build value for a business in a B2B space that is it's it's very competitive, but it's also very, very important. And so that's kind of what got me really, really interested in the company and then met the CEO and several of the management team. And it's just been a it's been an amazing experience. I've been there seven months now and and, you know, now it's all about um, SaaS and SaaS delivery and cost of acquisition. And, you know, it's, it's a, we, we didn't really think so aggressively about that at Intel. We thought about it much differently. And here it's, it's very, we're measuring, we have a wonderful data st- uh, technology stack that allows us to really, and you can really look at that journey because almost everything we do is digital. So we can really look at each point of that journey, measure its success, so it's a, it's a combination now of blending creative and innovation, innovative marketing with a really robust set of data and technologies that give you the opportunity to, to move real time. So all of those things were, were, were fascinating to me, gave me a chance to stretch my skill set a bit and uh, really see about driving growth in a really critical business that has got a lot of you know, well-funded competitors. So it's, uh, all the way around was a re- really, really good
1: opportunity. I'm curious, what's the mindset like when you're kind of going into that role? How did you prep for that? Talking about, you know, hey, we need to, I need to ramp up my field marketing knowledge. I need to ramp up my demand gen, you know, pipeline, uh, you know, attribution models and all that stuff. I'm curious, like, what'd you, would you do to prep? Yeah.
3: Um, a lot of, a lot, a lot of reading, a lot of study, talking to a lot of other people, some good friends and peers of mine that are in a similar business, uh, similar business model. Um, really understanding how they go about it. Um, but you're right. I mean, right now, I, we, we obsess over our pipeline, right? We, we, we obsess over the sources of our pipeline. We obsess over the different tactics and how and what is working and what's not working to deliver pipeline. We sort of obsess over the customer experience. And it's, it's fascinating because, again, at Intel, the, the, the customer base we dealt with was such a, you know, these were large multinational customers. So we sort of marketed to the consumer, but we sold to large enterprise. So the customer journey and the customer experience was, at least at the time, it's, it's much more refined now. But it was, it was almost one step removed, and we didn't have as much insight as, as I have today, partly because the tools are better, but partly because this, this business is um, it's very, very much about um, ensuring you have the right segment, the right target within that segment, and the right profile. And that you, you, you're going after them and you're measuring literally everything you do. And in many ways, I almost feel like, you know, the, 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 you know Chairman Powell at the Fed, where you have so many different knobs and, and, and levers that you can pull. And the beautiful thing is I'm, I'm getting data on a regular basis to say, hey, this is working, this isn't working. And we're able to sort of adjust quickly. And, and that's not something when you're at a big budget television led marketing campaign, you, you, you just can't move quickly because you create your, your campaign, you create, you do your creative, you do your testing or whatever. But you, once you're on, on market, you're on, you're in market and you've got your media by supporting that. It's very hard to change. Digital is a different world, right? We can be very, very agile, very, very fast, we get feedback very, very quickly uh, and we can know whether something's working and, and, and adjust appropriately. And so that, that's also a really, um, it's kind of a two edged sword because I love it. Uh, but the pressure is, has never been greater, I think, on CMOs, which is why I think CMO shelf life continues to shrink because um, the expectation of delivery of results, which is top line growth and, you know, top line driven bottom line growth, that, that pressure, I think, has never been greater. We've evolved from being a brand focused uh, discipline to now a revenue focused discipline. And making that transition has been—it's uh, not easy. It's not an easy one for for marketers today.
1: Well, and I think this this speaks to and a little bit consumer versus business for sure in there too. But the idea that you know, the idea of a brand is like you want everyone on the same page, right? Like everyone on in the United States, you want on the same page about how they feel about Intel, like superior product uh, that is inside of. Uh, You know, the computers that you buy. So, you know, pay the premium to make sure that you have it versus B2B, which oftentimes personalization is more important. How your IT department feels about your brand is very different from how, you know, your marketing people feel about the brand or, or vice versa you know, stakeholders in the ecosystem, how your CEO feels about you using a certain product is very different from the person who's implementing. So yeah. How do you kind of look at, at marrying those two things? Because at the end of the day, you still want to have a brand that people, you know, trust, like Salesforce our our great sponsor of this show. Um, Salesforce has an extremely, extremely resonant brand. Um, But the different products within the ecosystem have a different feel to them. Um, And obviously, it's a really big company. But, you know, for the people who use Pardot, they feel a certain way about Pardot. Um so I'm just curious how do you look at kind of the difference between personalization versus that overall brand appeal where we still want people on the same page about how we feel about the brand but also we need to have that that element of personalization.
3: Yeah and I so that's a, it's a really it's, it's something that I think all of us are grappling with right you know great if I as I think about it you know I think about personalization and it's 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 super important and being A digital first very modern digital first marketing focused um, team we look at this and say okay the tools now exist the data now exists that I can create personalization so that's awesome and so we spend a lot of time on that but then as you point out on the flip side the notion of brand is still about having uniqueness and differentiation in the hearts and minds of your target audience right and I've you know I've said this a lot. What I've learned is the data is awesome. I love it. I love to see it. I've got a great dashboard. I look at it all the time. And I'm constantly asking about this and that and the other and and we're making decisions based off of it. But the thing that I've learned is as good of a data set as I have, and as a good of a, a means of finding a way to personalize the journey, meet my buyer at every stage of their journey with relevant content. Um, all of those things, we we just we obsess over that. And we spend a lot of time and energy to, to ensure that we're able to do that. You know what? My competition has the same data that I do. They have the same access to the same tools and the same insights. I'm never going to win um, the day by having a better tech stack and having um, better data. Because I'm probably never going to have that. I'm gonna, if I don't have it, I'm at a disadvantage. If I have it, I've leveled the playing field. So how do I break through? How do, and so this is where I spend a lot of time too, is how do I differentiate and how do I create space in the minds of my, bio, my, target, my target audience? And that comes back to this notion that you still have to be innovative. There has to be innovation in marketing. Some of that is, is my message very clear and very consistent? Is there an elegance to the simplicity of it? Which is sounds great, but it's very hard to get to. The companies that are just really good at being simple um, are, are very—they're they're very, very good. But then, you know, I kind of have this model where the three things I look at from a brand: one is simplicity, the second is uniqueness and differentiation. So, what is that unique, differential sort of secret sauce that I bring to the marketplace? And then, how do I amplify that? And then, the third is the emotion. What is that emotional resonance that I want my audience to take? And I kind of use those three things as my filter to drive the brand side of the story because that's where my innovation is going to come in. That's where my creativity comes to bear. That's how I stand out in the marketplace and ensure that not only are my customers seeing me, but they're recognizing there's something of value and some sort of unique differential, simple, emotional story there. And That's still, you know, that's how marketing started. It's still really, really important today. Uh, We've swung the pendulum very heavily in favor of of journeys, insights, data. And like I said, I I consume it all. But it doesn't, it's not, I'm not going to win. I might lose because I don't have that, but I don't think I'm going to win. I still have to leverage that to come to the other side of the coin, which is how do I innovate? How do I stand out? How do I differentiate? And that's, I think, what marketers are struggling with.
1: No, it's a, it's a, it's a great point. And I think um, it is something that with all of the noise out there that we get caught up in like just doing motions and not having impact. I mean, we talk a lot about ABM on this show and about, you know, if you break down, you know, ABM into its kind of components and you have obviously like, you know, selecting the accounts and who you're going to target and all that. And then you engage those accounts. Well, That's, the engagement is the key, right? Is like, the engagement is the art uh, of it. Uh, The rest of maybe, and I'm kind of just saying this off the top of my head here, but if you take like ABM and and the art and the science, everything is science except for the engagement piece, which is the art. And the art is the hard part, right? Now, we're going to measure that. We're going to figure that out. But it's how people feel about, Uh, that engagement. And a lot of the engagement that has been happening is really freaking annoying. Like that's part of the thing, right? Is marketing and even, you know, like TV ads, we were just used to, but if you take a step back and look at how people consume content now, it's like taking 30 minutes of my life and just saying eight minutes of it are gone to you know, watch a bunch of ads that people are shoving at you is pr- is a pretty outdated and like archaic model. Um, and we kind of drag and drop. I've talked about this in the past, but we kind of drag and drop that on on video ads on digital, and it's a horrific experience <laughs> that nobody wants. Uh, the fact that you get like mid rolls like, oh, oh, and like Facebook videos and worse. YouTube videos is wild because we're not conditioned to it, right? Like we're like, hey, this wasn't the social construct that we signed up for, you know and the interruption marketing by interruption is slowly going away uh, or it's just getting more annoying. Um, And, uh, and I think that that's a huge thing that we need to, we need to figure out is like, how do we engage? How do we do things in a creative way that, like you said, differentiates, us from hey we're not the annoying people we're not the people who are having our salespeople beat you over the head every single day with emails we're not the person who's like constantly interrupting every single you know piece of media that you ever you know try to engage with uh you know conversely it's like yeah that stuff might work but it also alienates you know maybe you know the ten percent of people that convert the ninety percent of people uh are are pretty are pretty <laughs> upset with your brand and that's not a good way to do things either
3: it's so true. And I'll give you an example, something that happened to me recently. Uh, uh, you know, and this is why ABM is so interesting. what ABM really does is it allows you to really focus. You, you pick the accounts you really want to go after. And then you just, you really, because when you're, when you're saying, Hey, my target audience is X thousands of, of people, by definition, it takes you to, um, a, a more generic implementation. I mean, not, not necessarily always the case, but just, just in terms of being able to reach a broader audience, it sort of limits the, the real personalized capability that but ABM says, okay, I'm, I'm going to go after this suite of accounts. And I'm going to be really laser focused, but I'm also going to change the rules of the game. I'm going to engage a little differently, and so we've done some things that I thought were really great. But just the other, just oh, it was about a month ago. I get this thing in the mail, right? And I'm I'm clearly the object of someone's ABM campaign. But I, I I just I I almost want to buy their product or service because this was such. I mean, I I pay such attention to this. If it's you know, I have a folder in my on my computer that's called bad marketing and good marketing. And so when I, when I see things that are really bad, which are the annoyance ones, right? And people that are irritated because you haven't responded to their emails, so great. I just keep them in there. Cause it's like, this is an example of how not to do this because every time I get one of these, I get, you know, no, but now the problem is you said this earlier. now the problem is you get, you know, I'm getting 150 a day. So it's now the, the, the there's so many of them. That I can't even like, you know, it's, it's just a sea of noise. But anyway, I get this thing in the mail. And it's kind of—it's a box, and I open the box up, and um, it's a treasure chest. And I happen to open the treasure chest up, and inside the treasure chest are two bottles of wine. Now, by the way, I don't even drink, so it wasn't like I was excited because I'm, I'm not a drinker. But, but what was fascinating about these were on one bottle was the label A, and on the other bottle was the label B. And uh, there was a note, and the note said, hey, Kevin, um, we are a company that does A-B testing right? So, I mean, how authentic, right? This was a brilliant, brilliant, absolutely brilliant door opener, right? We do A-B testing, explain what they do. What we've done is we've sent you two bottles of wine. One is actually a very nice bottle of wine and the other one is a very cheap bottle of wine. We'd like you to do your own A-B test and see if you can determine and get the answer right. And then, you know, and then the sales pitch was, of course, this is what we do. We do A-B testing to help you ensure that your content or your product or what, all the different things you would want to use A-B testing for. And I thought, this is fantastic, right? And so I brought my team in, and we were kind of huddling around, kind of chuckling at it. And I had them go off and take the, the test. And they did a test and came back and said it was this one. And we looked it up online. Sure enough, one was about a $40 bottle wine, The other one was about an $8 bottle wine. Now, obviously, more much more expensive. But that company, that situation, I mean, we there was m- multiple people that were thinking about it, talking about it. That's creativity, you know, that's taking ABM and putting innovation into it. So, you know, uh, those are great examples and I'm sure, you know, listeners all have their own, but that's the kind of thing I think that ABM does that we, that we're looking hard at making sure we can really create something unique and different in the way we go to market.
1: That's so good. I love that. That is really, really, really That's good. It's just
3: awesome marketing. You know, I just, I tip my hat to that company and I'm like, if I ever do want to use a third party, AB because we've got our own internal data science, This we do a lot of our own. But if I ever want to do a third party A-B testing, that company's getting my business. I won't even do it. I won't even look that at anybody else. That is so I'm good. Just, I'm going right to
1: that. Well, and because it created exp- an experience, yeah, sure. right? It created an experience for your team. Speaking of that, it's like, you know, I don't know if you've ever done any like escape escape rooms or anything like that. I I haven't, but very
3: familiar with them and a lot of people I know have.
1: Yeah. Like that's the same sort of ideas. Like if you're giving someone an experience around something that's like team building in some form or fashion, uh, that's a great, great thing. Wow. I love that. That was awesome. You also have experience doing a massive rebrand, uh, Dare I say, historic rebrand of Avnet. I'm curious, what were just some of the lessons that you got from that experience uh, on doing a rebrand? Because I know there's a lot of marketers that listen to this show that uh, are in the middle or thinking about one or or whatever.
3: Yeah, I actually, did the rebrand of Intel too. So uh, when I ran brand strategy, we rebranded Intel. This um, 2006, um, and 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 then did the same thing at Avnet. And the the lessons are very very similar, right? And what we, what we were looking at is, uh, you know, relevance is really important. And what we've found is that the way we presented ourselves, even though Intel inside at the time had a very high awareness, just the Intel master brand, it, there was, there was a weird, the, the data was showing that we were sort of slipping in relevance. We just were becoming less relevant to the conversation. And so we did a little research and found out kind of what people thought and why. And, you know, we were, pre- we were presenting ourselves as kind of a 1970s style technology company. This wasn't modern, and plus we were creating a little bit of confusion. We had an Intel logo, master brand identity, and we also had Intel inside, so we kind of had two versions of our brand in the marketplace. So we ended up um, really bringing those together and kind of refreshing it with some, uh, uh, some slightly different messaging. Um, and 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 so that went off, and that went really well. And then when I came to Adnet, it was interesting because Adnet near, was a nearly a hundred years old company. It started in 1921. Uh, on Radio Row, and uh, and it had uh, grown quite a bit, but its brand awareness was extremely low. It was a very operate in the behind the scenes type of a company, and and in this world where um, that, there was a time when that was actually fine because um, the physical and uh, the the physical presence of Avnet globally provided. Um, the access to the products that companies needed access to get or that, that needed in order to get the products that they needed to build their own products. So, but now the, you know, the world is changing, we're moving digital. You can stand up a digital supply chain and pretty quickly and having physical presence around the world is becoming less and less of a, of a, of a core advantage. And so how do you become relevant to those that are not using the internet to source their products rather than, um, you know, sort of physical locations or physical, uh, distribution. So, you know, we looked at um, what the brand, we went through a pretty rigorous process, but we, we got some really good research back and understanding what our customers felt about us, what our employees felt about the company, uh, what our partners felt about us. And you kind of, when you look at it, you realize, Hey, first off, our awareness was very, very low. Um, the preference was slipping because it was becoming less relevant. Uh, and then what you really do is you, you, a brand isn't something is a brand is not a marketing campaign. A brand is not something that is created by a marketer. What a brand is, is a, it, it is the, basically it's the description of the soul. That's what a brand is. And, and so when you, when you're doing a branding exercise or a rebranding exercise, what you're really trying to do is you're trying to make sure you discover and understand the soul of the company. And are you articulating that in a way that is resonating with your audience? And so as we went through it, we realized that the messaging we had was really not in line with what the soul and the truth of what the company is and what our customers and partners felt about us. And so a great brand really is that intersection between what is true and authentic about you and your soul. And then what the customers and your constituents really, really want and need. And that intersection is really um, where you, where you're looking to find um, the the, the description and definition of your brand. So we went through that exercise and and came out of it with a a much more um, relevant description of what the soul of the company really was. And then the marketing then came in and says, and how do I want to tell that story and how do I want to present it to the world? And That's where, you know, the real marketing activity took place. But the real work was in is really in finding that because once you find it, you know, I use some great examples. Um, If you think about Apple back in the day when they went with the whole Think Different campaign, now that wasn't just a campaign, right? Everything Steve Jobs was trying to do with Apple was about being different. It was about appealing to the James Dean in you. Don't be a sheep, right? And he insisted on that as a cultural norm as well. And so they imbued the whole idea of different. And then when they went to market with it, it was brilliant, right? Because it was very authentic. It was very ownable. It was very distinctive. It was the soul of who they were. And so at Avnet, we went through the same process and we realized, hey, you know what? We're not the brand that's going to win the Academy Award. But in many ways, we're the brand that the Academy Award winner is going to mention in their acceptance speech. So we... A very important partner. We're not Sir Edmund Hillary that goes to the top of Mount Everest, but we are that Sherpa that will get them there. And so we kind of built this whole brand around this notion of of being the uh, the Sherpa and um, you know came up with a with a, a line we used called Reach Further, which is, again, it was a very simple, unique and emotional descriptor of who we were, because it sort of had multiple meanings to it. It, it, it would it describe the essence of the culture of the company. And it also described the value that we bring to the customer. So it was both descriptive of our behavior, as well as the value that we brought them. And it was um, something we built an entire campaign around now. And, and, and I've since left, but it, it was really to help Bring to pass this transition around. We're not just a hardware distributor. We're actually the Sherpa that's going to guide you through every process of product development, go to market, and success. So that's kind of how we did it there at AvNet and a little bit about
1: Intel prior to that. Let's get into our lightning round questions. These questions are fast and easy, just like. Marketing with Salesforce. You can go to salesforce.com slash marketing to learn more and discover marketing built on the world's number one CRM. Put your customer at the center of every interaction. We love Salesforce. Check him out. Salesforce.com slash marketing. Lightning round questions. Kevin, are you ready? Let's go. Number one, what app on your phone is the most fun?
3: Probably when I travel, it's probably Netflix.
1: Hidden talent or passion?
3: Hidden talent or passion. Can I describe it as a stupid human trick? Of course. Hidden talent. It's a stupid human trick, but it's one of these amazing things. When I was in third grade, my teacher had the alphabet all around the room. And under the alphabet was the letter associated with that letter. uh, Sorry, the number associated with that letter. So, A had a one, B had a two, right, so forth. So, when I got bored, I would just stare at those placards. And So, now, whenever I see letters, I also see the numbers. And so, what I do is when I read a lot of signs or things... I actually add up the letters in my head and I can do it instantly. In fact, I can look at a word and I can tell you, like if I added up all the letters and it, let's say it added up to be a letter, a word that made up of letters that added up to say 65, I could tell you the letter or the number five, the second digit. I can do it instantly. I mean, I can do it within 0.1 second. I can that's look at any crazy. word and I can say, oh, that's a six or that's a nine or that's a, that's a seven. You know? It's a, there's like no value to it, but I, I'm so obsessed with it. Cause like every my wife just chuckles at me because I'll be driving down the street and I'll go, yeah, that's seven. That's a nine. You know? Cause I can just, it's like, it's one of those weird things that means nothing to anybody, but it's just once you've got it in your head now, I can't get the, I can't get the numbers that are associated with the letters out of my head. So I, I see numbers when I see letters. So there's my, it's not a hidden, it's not a passion, but it's definitely a hidden talent that has no value. How's that?
1: well. I failed kindergarten because I got to Jerry the giraffe and I was like, Jerry is with a G. That's it. I'm out of here. If Jerry's not spelled with a J, then I can't do this. So I got held back a year in, uh, in kindergarten, had to, do, had to do it again. So I feel like I needed that lesson, but I was on the animal, <laughs> on the animal train. Uh, but I love animals. So it kind of worked yeah. out. All right. Favorite thing to cook or eat?
3: Probably Korean barbecue. I lived in Korea for a couple of years, so I, I, I became a huge fan.
1: I should have Korean barbecue tonight. I love Korean barbecue. That's a great idea.
3: Yeah, uh, and we, yeah, I cook it. We have one of those little things you stick in the middle of the table with the gas grill, and it's got the, the dome on it, and we do the whole thing. We're, we're very Korean about it.
1: Best advice for a first-time CMO?
3: Best advice for a first, first-time CMO. Ensure alignment with your CEO. Work closely so i would say two things one ensure that alignment exists so over communicate but make sure you guys are aligned with what this, what he's what he he or she is really trying to drive as the leader of the company and second first and foremost be good at the basics rather than try and boil the ocean at first really figure out what are the what are the two or three things that i know i've got to go deliver and keep it focused on those basics and deliver value on those basics initially because then that gives you the
1: license to take on bigger and more. Okay, final question. What question do you never get asked that you wish you were asked more often?
3: Why is ice cream so
1: addictive? <laughs> Why is it? I don't know. I can't think of a good one. I, you, you, you stumped me on that one. We'll, uh, we'll have to do it on uh, next time we bring you back on the show. Kevin, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for joining. Any uh, final thoughts? Any things to plug? No, no. I appreciate
3: it. Um, this is great. I I've, I've, uh, appreciate you guys. Let me uh, come and talk and uh, look forward to uh, listening to a lot more of the future podcasts.
1: Awesome. Take care.
2: Marketing Trends Podcast is brought to you by Salesforce. Discover marketing built on the world's number one CRM, Salesforce. Put your customer at the center of every interaction. Automate engagement with each customer and build your marketing strategy around the entire customer journey. Salesforce, we bring marketing and engagement together. Learn more at salesforce.com slash marketing.